This is the Bristol Cable. I pictured the person that stabbed me five times in my head, and then the person that wrote back to me was not that person. He did well. He didn't read like the words of someone that doesn't care for anyone as well. It was a kind message. I'm Neil Mags, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. Being stabbed and what happened to me isn't like a rare thing. I think for any young person carrying a weapon, you're a valuable, precious human being, you know. This, um, it's not worth putting your life at risk. By sharing his experience... That was the voice of A. Brennock, a filmmaker talking to ITV about his documentary on the BBC iPlayer called Scars, Surviving the Stabbing. When he was stabbed several years ago, it was something that he put to the back of his mind to forget about. But he experienced PTSD, night terrors, panic attacks, feeling scared all the time. So several years later, he decided to make a film about it, exploring his own feelings in therapy, also talking to other people that have been victims of knife attacks and restorative justice. Lots of people don't want to meet their perpetrator or even speak to them ever again, but he has. So we explore the impact of that and what help you can get for PTSD. You know, I talk about myself a little bit with some stuff I've experienced. Uh, me being me and getting my abbreviations mixed up, I do refer to EDMR in the chat, which is actually EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So it's a long old chat. Um, some of it's a bit intense, um, but do stick the kettle on, have a cup of tea, sit down and listen. I'm sure you enjoy. Hey man, how you doing? Hey Neil, how are you, my friend? I'm good. We're here to talk to you about your brilliant documentary. For those that haven't seen it, it's, it's on the BBC iPlayer. Scars: Surviving a Stabbing. I want to get right into why you made the program and the impact it's had. But I think for me, what struck out was I've seen quite a lot of documentaries or programs around knife crime but I haven't seen much at all actually about the victims of knife crime and how it makes them feel and the fallout mm -hmm. from that and this is obviously something that you have personal experience of so you were it was a story you wanted to tell for for how long how long would that have been a eh? you wanted to tell the story so I was stabbed about eight years ago in in Bristol initially for me it was something that I never even thought of I never connected that to my creative work at all I deleted the photos of my phone I threw away my clothes I just wanted to just erase the memory to be honest and I remember even like because I was making music videos and doing some film stuff back then but I remember thinking will I ever want these photos and I thought nah I'll, I'll never want to think about this moment again yeah and then over the eight years I noticed that there was a, a sense of kind of hurt really and different feelings like anger and stuff like that that I was still holding on to and I think by that time my craft of filmmaking had become more of an expressive thing for me and something that I used to make sense of the world so by that point it felt more natural for me to make a film about something that had been difficult for me but also a subject that was really close to my heart as well. Um, Quite hard to do though isn't it if you say you, you were around music videos and then you moved into making documentaries sometimes it feels better or safer to talk about a subject you might have a little bit of a connection to two but to be like bully talking about what you've 
experience can have quite a vulnerable sort of feeling, feeling a bit naked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I, I take countless people through that sort of process of having a voice in a documentary for years and years on really sensitive subjects like bereavement, addiction, mental health, similar subjects, really. So I was used to that kind of that world, but then doing it as a contributor and as the subject of a film as well as a director was completely different. I was wearing two hats. So there's days where I'd be trying to shape a scene. And then there's other days when I would talk to a, like a psychologist mm. and instead of directing, I'd be trying to lean into it and trying to like, trying to get therapy essentially. Yeah. Well, you um, sat down in that bit, in that particular scene, you were actually having therapy with the camera on your lap, filming it as it was happening, weren't you? Which yeah. I thought was quite, that's quite an interesting space, headspace to be in. It's two hats, man. It's like, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I'd recommend it to anyone really. Because kind of, <laughs> you can see that I'm like, there's a time when I get overwhelmed when I'm talking about what happened, but then mm. I'm also like trying to focus the camera. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's two completely different spaces, but I prioritize the therapy side of things in those scenes. Yeah. But then I'd come away and I'd be like, oh, fuck, did I, did I actually like lean into the filmmaking side of it enough? Did I lose my director's head? Because like you just, yeah, you just like, your director's head just gets flipped the minute you start yeah. digging into your feelings sometimes. Yeah, you, being able, in that dual headspace must be quite tricky. I just want to talk a little bit about a couple of things that you did. So you were involved in Drugsland as well, which was quite a seminal docu-series about drugs and, and around Stakes Croft and that kind of St. Paul's lean-in area, which was made, I think it wasn't made by the fellow at Channel 4? such a Mersinoff, wasn't it? He was in, based in Bristol. Yeah. That must have been quite an interesting thing to have made. Yeah, definitely. In, yeah? Like, and Sasha Mersinoff's been a bit of a mentor to me, really. And working on Drugsland was quite a kind of a formative project for me. It was my first kind of really long-term documentary because we were on it for 18 months filming right. drugs within one city, within Bristol, um, small perspectives. So we filmed sort of dealers, people with addiction, recovery, policing, politicians. It was real. It was quite rounded, wasn't it? I would say one of my criticisms of like police documentaries, it does tend to be from a police sort of narrative a bit, whereas I find Drugsland was a bit more broader. Definitely, yeah. Unbiased was like the way that it was pitched initially and it always needed to be that really. So I guess it's like in the way, same way that like drama series, like The Wire and stuff like that, you know, with people yeah, yeah, on yeah. both sides of the fence. Yeah, yeah, and like, work, and, yeah. I think when you're doing anything with like with people with addiction and like and the root cause of addiction is so often trauma and hurt and things like abuse I think it's so important to to humanize and to give people a, a voice on both sides and understand the root causes of it as well. Let's move on to what we want to talk to you about primarily. I recently did an article for the Bristol Cable with a range of perspectives on knife crime which was somebody who was a victim and a perpetrator somebody who worked in the prison system somebody who was a community worker and somebody else that, that gives a, give a kind of sense around what's happening in knife crime. So I've got some stats here. So this year, 47,300 offences involved knife and sharp implements. That's up 6% from last year. Mm. The street robbery with a knife has increased by 20% from last year. Threats to kill with a knife by 5%, rape by 3%. So it's clearly on the rise. There's clearly an issue here. It's complicated, I know, but for you, is there are there solutions to this, and, and what, where do you think we find them? 
It's like you said, I think it's such a complex issue. And I mean, like this, the film that I've just made is much more of a kind of a mental health and a trauma film in a way. So like, so we don't go, we don't go into sort of the bigger picture of knife crime too much in it. But obviously I have my own thoughts. Um, Some of them come from like what I would have wanted as a young person. And then some of them come from just like my views, my personal views about root causes. I mean, look, I think austerity is a massive one like if you strip a country of its resources over such a long period i think we've seen our youth services cut by 70 percent or something like that across the country i think it's around 400 youth centers nationally have have closed in the last 10 years that's not only kind of youth centers as well that's like just i know maybe within youth centers that's like sports facilities sports clubs and stuff like that and all Mm. things that essentially keep young people occupied like like knife crime is like it's predominantly statistically it's like a it's a male issue and I suppose it's it's I see it as quite a sort of a as as being very linked to poverty as well. When we're young and we have no role models or any anything to like occupy our time and we're just left out there, I think that's when things sometimes start to go wrong. When like when kids are just out of the house, like when I was I remember when I was in my really early teens, I just pushed myself out of the house and I was out from like from after school until sort of 10 p.m every night do you know what I mean I was yeah. just kind of out and about and did you see that happening then long before you were stabbed did you see young people carrying or using knives growing up do you know what where I grew up it wasn't a big thing it was like it was just occasionally now and then because I moved from Ireland and then I moved to North Devon and then yeah. I moved to Bristol like there were times growing up when I think like one of my friends, he had his flat robbed when we were about 17. And at the time he was like, I should carry, I think I need to carry. And I was like, I was trying to talk him out of it. And it's just because he'd had some lads smash through his door basically and steal all his stuff. And he, and he was, and he feared for his safety and it could, he knew it could happen again. And, and it's think- an equalizer, isn't it? For, for some young people, it's, if somebody else is going to carry, then through fear, I feel I need to, because I'm going to get yeah, hurt. It has like a pandemic effect almost. So if you're in a place where there's more like higher levels of knife crime or higher levels of people carrying, then you're more susceptible to carrying yourself. So I do, I do think kind of fear, fear is a thing. And like you said about the equalizer thing, I think it's sometimes it's matching the level of violence that, that people think is going to be brought to them as well. And that's just sad that our young people don't feel safe to walk around the main roads in our towns and cities in the article that i wrote the people i spoke to it wasn't just about perpetration of knife crime what's happening it was the type of knives being used yeah it's massively shifted and changed from now it's these big bloody zombie things which are about eight foot almost like swords aren't they it's almost like a quite blatant even though we live in an era where there's more cctv and people will get caught i know people are ballied up and with hoods on and stuff but these zombie knives they're huge I think you know? once again, that sort of that talks to like the level of fear and the kind of that threshold of violence that people are meeting as well. Because I guess mm. what what people must, I mean, it's it's not right at all, and you're probably way more susceptible to being stabbed with a larger knife or your own knife if you carry. But I guess the thinking is that you need to match what someone else. Well, is yeah, going to if you've got you. a zombie knife and I've got a tiny little thing like that, then it's not a level playing field is it that that would be the the mindset behind that what universally came across and what you said really was around when young people just quite simply have less to do 
and are channeling their focus into whatever there is. I'm that I'm a I'm not a great fan of of young people just hanging out. I did it. I know I've got my 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 Same kid just there. started senior school. Go into the park, just hanging out. You know, go play football. Go, I don't know, go on a bike ride. Go to the boxing gym. Focused activities. I think, and like you said, with all the cuts, austerity cuts across the board, that has increasingly become more difficult for young people to do. And that doesn't mean you excuse that behaviour and you could and you collude with that and you do still challenge that. But I think there, it's quite clear that when somebody is engaged in a positive activity on a regular basis, they're less inclined to do that. And all the evidence demonstrates that. 100%. And I think that's part of the reason that it's worth funding these kind of more grassroots community organizations and people doing work or even like community boxing clubs. Like my friend runs a boxing club that we went to when we were kids. And it was a place that gave me structure when I was younger and craving it. And he now gets local funding from, I think, from the council. I've seen kids increasing their well-being and their confidence so much within that space over over years. Arguably, he does as much there as a more kind of on-the-nose youth worker would as well. And also think boxing clubs will have people that know the track. They're not going to be patronising, condescending. They're going to keep it real and challenge where they need to as well. It's not something you can do half as well. Like boxing's like, yeah. like when I was growing up, my friends are there like properly... They wouldn't drink like throughout yeah, the whole yeah, yeah, yeah. of the winter. Yeah. They'd just drink in the summer and they'd get, they look like Ricky Hatton after he'd, he'd puffed up and they'd, they'd get like, <laughs> overweight in the summer. Yeah. And then it's just that discipline that it's so all consuming that it just gives you that structure. And yeah, people don't realize that. I think people from outside, I'm, I'm quite involved in a few things in the city, boxing boys. People don't realize that outside the, the many kind of benefits and it can get a bit of a bad reputation for almost being a violent sport and stuff. But in my opinion, and it sounds like you're the same, it's far from that. But as you said at the top, your film is the human side, really, and quite a fresh angle for me. We have seen lots of documentaries around gangs and around knife crime and stuff like that. But just an an incident that happens, I don't think I've seen anything told so well on the impact, the physical and actually the mental scars. And you call it scars, surviving a stab. And I presume that's not just about physical, that's the mental stuff. And what that leaves can you just explain what happened? Yeah, about about eight years ago, I was finding my feet as a filmmaker in Bristol. I'd had my first camera funded by the Prince's Trust in Bristol. I was, I'd done the odd TV job. But I was mainly living off videography work, did a lot of music videos. I probably shot like 60 music videos across a few years for sort of friends and musicians in, in the city. And I collaborated with someone and it turned sour and basically me and a friend were like never paid for scam essentially. Mm-hmm. And then long story short, I bumped into that person on a night out in Bristol, out in Zoxcroft, like an area that I've been out so many times over the years and never had any trouble over like probably 10 years before that. I'd like, I never had any trouble at all there. But I'm out on a night, I see the guy and then quite quickly... We start exchanging words. Not being paid has impacted me financially. I was it was like probably my next kind of months, like wages and living really that I was depending on to like cover my rent and stuff like that. So I didn't hold back my words. I was angry and probably yeah, just quite aggressive to be honest. I need to take accountability for that. And quite quickly I found myself in a scenario where he'd pulled a knife, he was holding a blade down to my stomach. Then there was a kind of a point where I probably, if I'd wanted to, I probably could have 
exited the situation. I probably could have run away. Looking back now as someone in my 30s and someone with, a, like, I'm a father, I would leave now in a, a second. Like, yeah. pride does not matter to me. I would think of what my loved ones would want me to do. But old habits came out and I stood my ground and we ended up having a fist fight and I found myself stabbed five times with luckily quite a small blade so I was I was stabbed twice in the head when me and him went to the ground I was stabbed in my face there and then I was stabbed in both sides and were Uh, you aware of it being stabbed as it happened because a lot of people I've, I've spoken to that have been stabbed and it comes out in the film matches you don't even know what's happened initially did you know yeah, I was completely aware. So it was because right. uh, people always say that being stabbed in your torso is like being punched. But I'd been punched growing up and it felt completely different because he stabbed me in the head. I heard the sound mm. and it was just a completely different sound to anything I'd heard before. Like I instantly knew that something completely different was happening. I could feel like the knife like sticking in my head, basically. And then I felt it come down and, and, and stab into like just under my eye as well. So, and then I sort of blacked out. I think my brain just shut itself down, basically, just like too much stimulation. And then I'm told that he's, like, I was stabbed in both sides after that. The next thing I remember is I jumped up, I walked up the strip, managed to get a taxi. I got myself to the BRI within about four minutes. And that was that, really. How does that feel? What's the kind would you describe it? I think when you, like most of the time when you're injured or if you're hit or something like that, you've got so much adrenaline that you almost don't feel, you don't really feel pain. But it was very different to being punched. I guess I could almost like feel like a blade in my head, not to get too graphic. But yeah, I could almost yeah. feel the suction of the blade being pulled out of my head. I can, I, is it like an icy kind of cold, sharp? It's more like it's like a puncturing feeling, really. Right. Like like a kind of almost like, it's so quick as well. It's almost like a sewing machine. Yeah, it's just okay. like a, a real quick sort of puncturing of your of, of your skin. But also like, it's, it's it, it, there is a thump there. Like when I was stabbed under my eye, like I was stabbed with so much force that like it gave me a black eye as well. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot of pressure just in one tiny place, just getting... It's probably one of the most invasive things you can do to a person. And at this point, did the fight continue? Did he run away? Did you collapse? What happened? I'd say after I got stabbed in the the head and the face, I think, like, the fight stopped. And I think, like, I think I almost lost my strength after that point. My brain just switched off. And I think there's about 20 seconds. So my friend... Milo, who was there and who features in the film, like in the first like minute and a half, it's me and him reliving what happened. He pulled the person off me when he saw that I was losing my strength and he realized what was happening. He jumped in and pulled the guy backwards. So like, if it wasn't for him, to be honest, I don't know what would have happened. Like, I think it could have been a very different situation. And you've um, ended up in hospital. How long after this have you gone straight away so instantly like once i came around i like jumped to my feet and and just i was like i just i need to get to hospital and i just walked up the road my two friends who were with me by that point so milo and another friend grabbed me and they're like running along with me and we i asked one taxi driver to they're like we need to get him to hospital 
this first taxi driver's like, nah, like he didn't oh, want to. You're, get... you're covered in Clara and you're trying to get into Yeah, yeah, yeah. like bleed, bleeding out of my head, my yeah. face, my sides. Yeah. Like, and so he's like, no, basically. And then we luckily just got another taxi like quickly after. And then just it's like zip down to A and E, BRI, and it's just so that's down Jamaica Street and around see so we were there within a few minutes I, I, I redid the drive for the film as well and it's i was lucky it's such such a quick journey really the fact you were that close to a hospital yeah and then yeah, and then yeah. quickly run into a and e they get my sort of puffer jacket off which is all cut yeah. up and my t-shirt and they identify where i'm injured just to get a good look at me and they just got me to a bed right away and then i just got it was superficial wounds so it was like staples to my head glue under my eye and then stitches in my side basically yeah and like so i was lucky i mean it like these wounds healed up within a few weeks yeah i got my stitches out i went back to work like an entry-level job on this program at the time and i went back to work yeah like a few days after and i think because it wasn't anything that took me out it allowed me just to kind of bury it and act like nothing had happened really and i kind of almost just almost like laughed it off and joked about it with my friends at the time. Didn't act like it was yeah. anything really that had, had fussed me. I thought I've had times where I've been attacked or something, but not with a knife before. And it, if anything, like I probably foolishly thought when I was younger, that probably made me more resilient in a way. But this was, it was not the case because like you could be as stoic as you want and try and compartmentalize it, but then it just, it comes out. I've always been someone that kind of, felt quite grounded on the whole with my mental health but you could go to sleep thinking everything's all right and then you wake up just you're kicking out in your sleep your heart's going a million miles an hour you feel like and your partner told you this in the film didn't she you were initially you weren't necessarily aware the night terrors running shouting in your sleep and stuff yeah oh no i was aware you you were aware right yeah because when i when it happened that particular one in the film like i woke up i was literally kicking out for quite a long time and, and screaming like so loud that we were worried that my neighbors were gonna hear it and there's a certain point where you're panicking in your sleep and then you come around and then slowly you start to get grounded and that but your heart is still beating yeah. and you're sweating the weird thing for me was i experienced these like these night terrors right after i was stabbed and what i think was a, a panic attack and then just general probably something that a lot of young people sadly have is like just not feeling safe because of the genuine risk of conflict when you're walking around town or even yeah. in your own home. You felt that fear around you, yeah? Yeah, no, that was my sort of first, like, almost like couple of years. And then you feel like, and then feelings of anger and stuff that come with all of that hurt as well. Yeah, I, I just never really opened up. Like, I, I talked to my friends, like, say if I had, in the early years, if I had, like, a few drinks, I'd, I'd tell my closest friends, I'd be like, nothing ever rocked me as much as that, really. Like, yeah. I never expected it to in the way that it did but I never unpicked it like I have through the film I'm interested in because this is something that's quite prevalent with what PTSD trauma essentially is a kind of stuck memory really it's something that's that happens that's overwhelming that your system just holds on to and it can't process as a what they call like a narrative memory so it just becomes Mm -hmm. something and that's the reason why when soldiers go to war you know highly trained people some get PTSD others don't and they're in the same situations. It's often not what happens to you. It's how your system responds to that. And it doesn't matter how tough you are and how mentally strong you are. It just is, it's a kind of 
it's a neurological memory dysfunction, essentially. A lot of people don't get that, which is why therapy, often talk therapy doesn't work always or certain types of talk therapies unless you go to the right, right people. But you said earlier, and this is one thing that sticks with a lot of PTSD sufferers, is you said you could have walked away. A lot of people talk about situations when they know they could have done something and there becomes this guilt thing or there becomes this, I should have done this and I should, and it replays and replays. How much did that play on you? Yeah, so much. What I find like really interesting as well is that I thought time was a healer and I thought after eight years, I don't, that's the biggest myth. It's the biggest myth that people say. Yeah. You're stuck, you're stuck in time. You're literally stuck in time when this stuff happens. Yeah. That's it. And I was surprised like by how little I'd managed to process in eight years. It's almost like yeah. all the same feelings had just been locked away in there and not touched. And then when I started talking about the film and I started the film, I was forced to then be on the phone to sort of loads of different people every day, telling them about my experience. And that was when night terrors came back. So I'd go to sleep happy and then I'd, I'd wake up in a state of panic. It is like a trap memory. And I think before I made the film, I would find myself replaying the memory, like you said, almost like imagining scenarios where it happened in a different way, yeah. trying to make sense of it. And it's like, it's a hazy memory, but it's a hurtful memory. Yeah, right? I, I get it. It's kind of hazy in your brain, but mm. your body, there's a book called The Body Remembers. You're, you, you might be, ha- and actually the haziness of your memory, it, or some people completely disassociate and they can't remember anything at all. That's your kind of body's natural way of anesthetizing yourself mm. from pain. But like what you said earlier about the whole, and I think this is fascinating stuff, how we have this time heals stuff. If you were poisoned by a snake, yeah, time's not going to heal that, is it? It's only going to go away if you have the antidote. It's going to get deeper and deeper and spread. And actually, PTSD gets actually gets worse with time unless it's addressed properly. The physical, the, the, yeah, the physical symptoms yeah. are multiplied. So it's unless you can somehow get your brain to realise, yes, this happened. It wasn't necessarily your fault. Things just happened. It's traumatic, but it is also a memory and it's not happening now. That's mm. the thing, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's not happening to you now. It's like your brain is on that red alert, that kind of flight or fight mode plays 100%. out. You know? I think, uh, I guess what I'm interested in, in for me is that a lot of people, and I, and I felt like I, uh, going through a process of therapy with my stuff, I didn't really go public. And in fact, the thought of doing that would have been, well, I might have told a couple of people close to me, but for you really to go, in a way, you've gone, and this is where I think it's quite unique and quite different, you've gone into this, probably, dare I say, still perhaps not being in completion or being healed by this stuff as you make the actual bloody documentary. That's pretty brave, man. Pretty brave. So yeah. I, salute, I salute you for that, you know. Oh, thanks, Neil. I think I always, I knew it was something I hadn't dealt with, but I think I probably underestimated how much processing I still had to do. It was quite extreme. I went back to where it happened. I've talked to lots of other people about it. I've been over it probably hundreds of times over the last 12 months. And talking to other people that experienced something similar to you, did that help? Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes, even if you know someone else in your friend circle who's been through something similar, which I I had a few of my friends that have been stabbed growing up. And we did similar things where we never spoke about it when it happened to them either. Like it's, and you look back at like, there's a friend of mine that was stabbed in my teens and we never spoke about it. But I think there's something about talking to someone with a shared experience and you see so many of the parallels in your experiences. And, like, and sometimes when you're struggling, it can feel quite solitary. And then I 
It's like someone like Curtis, who is someone in the film. He's an amazing guy from Kent. He was stabbed on, on a night out in Ramsgate. I saw so many parallels between Curtis's experience where he found himself going over the memory in his head again and again. He like he was stabbed in the back, so he never saw the person who mm. stabbed him. So he was just imagining it, how it played wow. out. I mean, that in some ways, that's ooh, that's like a the danger could be lurking in your head, like like anywhere. That's heavy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and and also it was it wasn't even like an altercation, like it was in my case. It was like someone just. I saw the video, of, the vid, the CCT videos in the film, isn't it? When a guy just walks up and then just runs off, like yeah, and like Curtis is like the reason I think he's so brave is he's like he. When I met him, he was only, I think about seven months, maybe six months after he'd been stabbed. So he's still recovering physically, but he's done everything he can to find closure for the hurt that he's endured. Mm -hmm. He's gone through the legal process, went through the court process, really brave thing, something that I I never felt like I could do. So I, I admire him for doing that. Now he sought professional help. And then he also, he chose to watch the CCTV of his stabbing as well, because he found himself playing it back in his head. And he was like, I just want to, I want to make sense of it and see yeah. how it actually happened. And to be fair to him, like I admire him for doing it. And he says that, I think it's a risky thing because it's almost, there's something that like the body, the body keeps the score that book will go into as well, which is like exposure yeah. therapy, where we expose ourselves to our, to like, to the thing that we went through. And in a way he's done that for himself. Yeah. in a kind of unregulated way by watching the CCTV. Because you're, there's a danger of re-traumatising yourself, but I think it's dipping in. And it, it's when you're ready to... Because that's what this is about, incompletion, isn't it? It's just about not making sense and moving on from something. I don't know if you if, if this happened to you, but people definitely happened to me and some people I know where I would put myself into quite dangerous situations after when I was traumatised without realising it was dangerous. And other people yeah. would be like, oh, fucking hell. He's like fearless. And I, I think on a strange unconscious level, I was trying to resolve something I'd not resolved. Yeah. Do you, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I've, I've done really similar things. Like I had a friend who had a, a really bad car accident and he found himself driving off the back of it yeah. dangerously again, driving yeah. close yeah. to the road. You've been so aware of your mortality or it's almost like potentially a way of trying to resolve it or take back some sort of control of it, isn't it, I think. Yeah, I think so, yeah. And also I think if you're numb as well, Mm -hmm. um, I used to work with a lot of young offenders and with kids and stuff and I would be known as the sort of person that would go into the most difficult situations and be able to deal with it others wouldn't and it's only now looking back that I think that was because of the stuff we're talking about I think mm -hmm. it's about self-protection isn't it it's about self-protection and self-love and having boundaries for yourself and I think tra traumatised people don't they're, they're, how can I put it their radar for what's dangerous and what isn't is skewed a bit do you know what mm, I mean? Mm, yeah, no, for sure, for sure. This is the advert bit now. But this is a new advert because we've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right-wing media millionaire-owned newspapers, the likes of Murdoch, and saying, don't chuck any money in their direction. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. You know, we've got a newspaper, we've got a website. We're doing more multimedia podcasts like this, mini documentaries. 
you can get involved and you can have a say in what we do. Chuck a few quid in, jump on the website, and it would be great to have you as a member. Back to the chat. Um, and other people you spoke to in the film, I was also interested in the chap that was really on the front foot with his trauma, putting like videos out and in the gym and owning it. And it was almost like it became like his badge of honour that that he'd been stabbed. Like, do you know what I mean? I thought that was quite an interesting and quite a different response. Tell me about him. It's really different. Yeah. And like in the book you mentioned again, Body Keeps the Score, like that. Yeah. Like- that's by Dr. Van der Kolk. Is it Volker Kolk? Okay, uh, I don't know what's yeah, getting like, Is it yeah. like Hessel? Like Van der- Hessel Van der Kolk. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. brilliant. He's like a lead. For those that don't know, he's like the sort of like the world's leading sort of trauma therapy expert. It's an amazing book. But yeah, yeah. carry on. And I dipped into that book before I made the film, actually. Right. I dipped into it for a second time. But I think like one of the conclusions that he draws like towards the end of the book, like spoiler alert, but it's that like essentially you never like erase your hurt and you just, you come to see it differently. And what I found interesting about Kieran Quinlan, who's a guy from Birmingham that's in the film, he was stabbed in the heart when he was younger. And what he's done now is he's like lent into that experience, owned it and essentially like channeled it into his work as a personal trainer. It's almost like his whole experience has laid the foundations for his career, for his public speaking. He's done knife crimes, prevention work and formed his brand in a way. I think what Kieran's done is like, it's quite an extreme form of this, but I think he's further down the line than like a lot of the people in the film. And I think he, he had some really difficult years, especially like the first four years where he had PTSD, he had depression, he he spoke about feeling suicidal, just bursting out crying for no reason. That thing of trying to crack on like, like, pretty much everyone in the film did and then over time he sort of he learned that talking kind of worked for him so yeah lots of respect to him for having the bravery to talk about it but now he's just he's in a place where he can talk about it and be at peace with it and and hopefully help other people as well well he was cajoling you along a bit wasn't he in the film (laughs) yeah when you were talking to him oh come on you can do that and it was like i could feel you being a little bit reticent about some of his suggestions (laughs) like he was life coaching me in the film which yeah 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 it's great everyone else in the film like it's real sort of sensitive approach and like thoughtful kind of back and forth and that what i quite like about like mine and kieran's dynamic is we kind of challenge each other so at the start i go in and like i felt like i had to acknowledge that his experience has become the brand really as well um yeah and i kind of wanted to get to the heart of whether or not he's still affected and and he opened up like really bravely and said look i still have heart palpitations around the time of my stabbing when that comes when the seasons come back around and I think that's interesting that sort of that trauma lives in the body in some way and still revisits him, even like someone who I think like a lot of us would see as, as really sorted. Well, one of my things was depersonalization. I'd just trip out. So I just literally like, like I was like on just out my body kind of thing. And, then, and that is just a way of your body. Like it's too much, but it's just too much. And that sort 100%. of depersonalization or descent is something that, I think there's with this type of stuff, the only, there reaches a point, right, where you run out of places to hide. That could be a lot of people self-medicate through drink or through drugs. So, or so, so, and, yeah. and I think you're right. We talk about PTSD. I think everybody, to a certain degree, is responding from their various traumas, however big or small, throughout their whole life. Like anyway, it's just that this becomes like a thing that you can't escape from. I actually think a lot of those things like flashbacks or night terrors or 
physical symptoms are actually a warning sign from your body to say, listen to me. When you do start to deal with it or you start to face it, or as you said, expose yourself to it slowly and it loses its sense of you. And I've been through therapy with this stuff like you have. It, it, it's still there, but it just loses its, its intensity. Do you know what I mean? Does right. that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, like, I don't think like, from my perspective, I don't know if the memory, there'll ever be a point where I talk about it and don't feel something like, but yeah, at the same yeah. time, it's definitely got a lot easier and I feel more at peace with it. I think for, I would really advocate getting professional support firstly, but we know what the waiting lists are like in Bristol. Yeah. It's like, I, I know people yeah. that have waited in Bristol recently for over two yeah. years for mental health support. Um, That's critical, I'm, isn't it? And you say yeah. that within the film is where can you get that support? Dare I say it, I think some of the good stuff you've got to pay for. That's the problem because of waiting yeah. lists. And I, that's frustrating, I think. I wasn't sure how I felt about making a film that just showed people therapizing themselves in like really unregulated ways at first. But then actually after doing it, I do think there are things that we can all do that even might be just might just get you a few steps forward and lead you to then reaching out for support because that's yeah. a huge step for us. Like Even like the point of reaching out for support like there's a journey that comes before that as well you know just talking to a loved one it's it's writing down your thoughts it's people use social media now as a way like the generation after us now use social media in a completely different way they use it to therapize themselves and express themselves there's different things that everyone can do in terms of self-care and what for you is the self-care stuff what would you avoid and what do you try to implement more in your day-to-day kind of walk yeah, I, th- I think I think there's always been something there, and I think when I was really young and in my teens, like there was probably a sort of an element of like self medicating, and then actually, at a certain point, like exercise just became a massive thing for me, and now I like it's definitely like a massive part of like what makes me feel like I can do my work to a good standard and just be the best version of myself. Really, I, I need exercise in my life, and I, th- I think that's an important thing, but I don't think it necessarily. That just makes me feel good. I, I don't think it necessarily helps me process anything I've been through. And I think you need to do the work in another area and you need to be talking in some way and setting aside time to actually talk properly. It can't be five minutes with a friend. You need to be offloading to work through something. Or or like you said, there, there are other things for PTSD, aren't there? I mean, um, have you found anything in particular? Yeah, yeah, I did. I think what really push propelled me further was EDMR mm. um, which is I something reprocessing um, yeah. which is basically bilateral movements of a kind of you, you think about you focus on target memories and this thing around moving your eyes right to left is what you do in in sleep processing kind of memories and there's been a few things specific things around and I'm like oh right okay now that doesn't oh I that feels differently I've got and also I've got a different perspective on that it gives you a EDMR has enabled me to give a bit of space and a little bit and just change that perspective a bit and be like be a bit kinder to yourself I think mm, yeah definitely yeah I, I spoke to like an amazing like young actor actually that I met too late during the filming process to actually get in work with on the film but yeah he had a, a similar lived experience to me and he'd found is it EMDR EMDR, EMDR yeah. yeah, yeah, EMDR. You're right, yeah. He he found that really useful, and I think um, it had been a way for him to to dig into memories, but also just see them in a different way and make sense of them. He spoke about it. He spoke about it really positively. Are you, is it something you've had yet yourself? 
Have you had no, it's, it's, it's not. To be honest, when I went for a PTSD assessment was when my night terrors have like subsided a bit now. And I, 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 had, I had a proper formal assessment. I came above the threshold, but then we dug into some of the answers and it was like, actually, that was how I was feeling three months ago. Maybe now we could bring it down. And the woman doing it, she said, I don't think like you labeling yourself would be necessarily useful because you've managed to go through this filming process and make sense of some some stuff. I don't think it matters what it is. I think, and I think not once one thing fits anybody and everybody. I know people who've had CBT, which is cognitive behavior therapy, which has been quite useful for them. I know I've also met some people that have just find it on their own really we i interviewed a bloke on this show does ketamine does uh, a psychedelic assisted therapy for trauma people and stuff like that and it's but i would what i would say is in terms of efficacy and evidence what edmr was seen as a bit fringe before mm. but now it isn't it is on the nhs and people do get referred yeah. to it. it's, it's the treatment of choice for veterans yeah. and it's on the in the states and here now it has the most evidential empirical evidential success rate and, and so it's gone through that journey of going a bit more kind of mainstream. It could and should be available a bit more, I think. Um, definitely. But, yeah, if you yeah put I definitely. In PTSD, you know. If you put in PTSD, like to the NHS, like you'll see it's, it's one of the main, it's one of the two. And it, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been even that, probably yeah. even, even less than that. But the one thing that actually, and this is something I've not done, and it, and it has crossed my mind. I've had a slight message exchange, crossed my mind, is... So my, just to be clear, people might be thinking what am I alluding to? My, my, mine was a kind of mental psychological abuse thing that happened to me in my kind of early 20s whilst being on something, like mm-hmm. which sent me a bit mad. And yeah, it, was yeah. inten- it was intentionally, malignantly trying to mess my head up, basically, as a kind of student, which left a kind of imprint. And, and uh, I'd not done been down this road, which is the restorative justice thing. Now you have the you have coercive control, which is like a leak where people can be, which, which didn't exist when this happened. So some people even said you could retrospectively go back, like you said, you didn't go down the police route. I, I didn't potentially could, but I've not done the restorative justice thing. When what restorative justice is contacting a an arrangement between a victim and a perpetrator is becoming more and more known in the criminal justice system. That's something you did do. I've got some stats on that because it's been very successful, it's led to 14% reduction in offending, 85% of victims, this was a study that was carried out by Sheffield University, 85% of victims were satisfied with the exchange, 62% of victims felt better, and only 2% reported feeling worse. And it definitely benefited you. And you weren't sure about doing it, were you, in the film initially? Yeah, so I looked into it for quite a long time before I decided that I wanted to try to do restorative justice. And I, I yeah. think through researching it, I kind of learned that I think one of the myths of it is that it's always like you meet in person and you sit down in a room and that that is a large part of it. But like a restorative process can also consist of a message between a, in, in crime terms, a victim and a perpetrator, or it could be a, a message just passed by a practitioner. It could be mm. It could be exchanging letters, it could be a phone call, or it could be meeting in person. And I, I weighed up the pros and cons for quite a long time. And actually, there were a few weeks, and this isn't necessarily like reflected in the film really, but there are a few weeks where I was just like, nah, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah. reach out. I could and feel I, your hesitancy there. I could feel yeah. from watching it as a viewer, I could feel you were like not sure about it. 
And even when you sent it, it was a great scene. You sent it. That's one of the best things in the film. And you were like, oh my God, no, no. And, and that sort of tension. And you didn't expect to get a reply, but you did. And you didn't want to open it initially. <laughs> or you, yeah, I could feel that, man. That was really, really well told in a, in a documentary sense. Yeah, like truthfully, like massive thing for me, to be honest. And like, yeah. and to be clear, like I never, like, so I spoke to a, rejo- a restorative justice organization and they said, because we don't have the consent of your perpetrator, um, you have you would have to just make contact initially. And then if your perpetrator is open to engaging in a restorative process, then you can refer him to us and we can start that process and you can look into yeah. whether you want to meet or like just initial conversations, basically. And I spoke to an, an amazing organization in the Southwest called Shekinah that helped me do that. And they talked me through what it would involve. So I decided I wasn't going to reach out. And then I thought, do you know what? Anger is not a nice thing to see in yourself. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like no one wants to carry that. It's essentially like cortisol, which is like a drug really, like just getting released and into it, your body on a daily basis. And it doesn't go anywhere, does it? It just goes back to yourself, yeah? hundred percent and like it comes out subtly in the way that you talk to a friend when they stress you out or a loved one or something like that so I, I just didn't want to hold on to that feeling i just wanted to cleanse myself of it and and feel free of it and I, I also like there was a certain amount of fear that you feel when like the last bit of interaction you've had with someone is essentially like a threat and then you leave it for years and you, there's no promise that it couldn't happen to you again or after the film went out so I was really drawn to the idea of like, even if I didn't achieve restorative justice, I was really drawn to the idea of some sort of mediation. Firstly, I just, I wanted to get in touch with him and just let him know that, yeah, I might carry some anger and stuff like that, but I'm a rational person. And like at heart, I don't, I wish him nothing but positivity. Like even if I might still have some unresolved feelings about what happened. So you were prepared to not get a response. And in a way, the fact you made an emotional step was about healing yourself. You detached yourself from the outcome, yeah? Partly, but I, I was yeah. also prepared to get a threat as well. Oh, uh, uh, okay. I think right. there's part of you that just doesn't know, you picture the person that's harmed you as that same person, don't you? Like there's no reason that you wouldn't. So there was part of me that was also kind of preparing for the worst, but then I thought, if that comes in, I know where I'm at, and at least yeah. I have some sort of closure. Like I, I can prepare for that. I can I can understand that. But I just wanted I wanted him to know that actually I wish him nothing but positivity, and I wish him the best. And look, it wasn't like he just ran up and did it. There was an exchange there, and I played some part in it as well. And I wanted to take accountability for my role in that situation as well. So I I took the step of really carefully writing an email that kind of that put across my feelings. And I thought, even if he doesn't reply, at least he knows that. And I can walk away knowing that I've let go on my end anyway. And I've, yeah. I've, I'm at peace with that. And you got a response that surprised you. It surprised me watching actually as well. I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. It's sort of built to this point. And actually you were like quite bowled over by it. I expected no response just because I never press charges and stuff like that as well. So I thought the most likely thing would be just like, yeah, no response at all. And he got back in touch and he apologised for everything. He wrote a really kind message and 
basically said that it was it was we were sort of young. He wanted to apologize as an adult for what happened, and he's glad that I'm doing well and stuff like that. And that was huge. how was that for you? How was that for you? Yeah, I think like genuinely the anger that I sort of had carried like for him in myself I just quite quickly like and it's it's amazing how quickly this happened like I just I felt it dissolve and I, and it still hasn't I don't know like I, I don't know if years down the line like I, I might feel different but right now I feel almost more of a sense of warmth for him because I know that he's it can't have been easy for him to write that as well and he just sent such a kind message and it, it's because it i suppose when you if you think about it your brain is frozen in that that you're almost expecting that you, you probably forget that he has probably been on his own journey or he's certainly not the same person he was back then and that's what came out it was almost like i could it, as watching it i could see you were like well yeah oh yeah he's like you had a frozen image of what who he was as well yeah 100% yeah i pictured the person that stabbed me five times in my head and I was still picturing that person. And then the person that wrote back to me was not that person. It didn't, well, it didn't look, I've not met him in person, but yeah. it did not read like that same person. It did not read like the words of someone that doesn't care for anyone as well. It was a kind message. Did you, have you had any contact with him since then? I've not, it's been really minimal. I sent him one more email just to let him know that I wish him well and I let him know that I just I reassured him that I had no ambition ever to name him in the film or anything like that there are films that do that and like there are and there's probably a completely different way that I could have taken this film where I did that but even from the start I knew that I never wanted to identify him and I didn't want to yeah, I, I don't know. It's been eight years, you know. Everyone, everyone deserves. It, it's not. I, I guess what I'm leading to is not because you haven't met him yet. This was all done online. You have, and people do, as you said earlier, in restorative justice, they do sometimes meet. That's not anything that you particularly need or, or, or want. It's hard because I don't know what the dynamic would be between us when we meet. So I don't know. Like for now, it's not something that I feel I need. For now, I'm happy with where I am. And yeah. I, to be honest, like the film just take, took so much energy that I'm I'm ready to to have a little step away from it because it's essentially like a like working through something for a year. And for now, I just I feel hugely grateful for the email that he sent me, and I feel content for now. Yeah. Well, that's amazing, man. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that just shows that the, the power of, I don't know, I guess it's acceptance, forgiveness, understanding. I, I suppose that's what that is, really. Mm-hmm. Perspective. Yeah. I think it sounded like where you, the way you were talking about it was that like you, you were young, he was young. You were both like that. That probably, if you come across each other now, you said you're a parent now, you're older. That probably wouldn't happen if you two came into a similar conflict no. now. So it's just interesting how that heals stuff. If I see him now, I'll, I'll probably I'll, I'll shake his hand. We'll meet peacefully, yeah. and there'll be nothing but positivity there. Yeah. When someone has trauma, it, it stays in their on their mind, and and as we've said many times in this conversation, it hangs around you. There are people also that do get PTSD or experience trauma that are perpetrators of things, as well, not just victims. And I just wonder whether that crossed your mind how this incident had maybe even impacted upon him if it was something that was out of character or something that he deeply regrets himself. Did that come across or did you have some sense of that? 
I think, do you know what? I, I never even considered it for years and years. And a few people said it to me, like a psychologist that I spoke to in the film, Tosin Bowen Wright, she said that for every stabbing, that impacts every single person. Like, And even though he was never charged or anything like that, that will have... That's, it's a very extreme situation and that will have impacted him psychologically in some way. I don't think I ever saw it in that way. Now I do. Something about your 30s as well, isn't there? I think like we, you feel, I guess people come to it like sometimes in their late 20s or some people 40s or 50s. But there's, I think we feel kind of immortal and, and like men in their teens and their 20s feel kind of like you just crack on i guess society has changed as well it's far more acceptable for particularly for men young men to talk about how they feel and to talk about mental health than it ever was i still think we could do more i don't think we're i think we're getting mental health challenges confused with being like physically mentally well i think there's a lot of stuff that i see people talk about that maybe misses the beat but at least people are talking about it you know it's a process it's a journey but when you come out of this is that i just i do i notice things in other people a lot more now i don't know about you than i ever did and it's like well that's a trauma response he's but why is he reacting like that whereas before i'd be like oh if i upset him i'm like why i'm like this is nothing to do with me. This is something that, you know what I mean? He's triggered or she's triggered by something. Have you got that clarity a little bit now in your interactions with people? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I definitely yeah. see someone I'm like, that person could do with like offloading. They're carrying a lot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah man. Percent. Yeah, you, yeah, you definitely see it. And I think, or I just, I, or you instantly think this person's got a lot of hurt. Like what happened to that person? Yeah. And Seriously. you have empathy. You have empathy yeah, towards yeah. them, whereas it would have maybe triggered you before or you would have reacted in a fight or flight way. I think it's a beautiful thing to come out of something you've been trapped in for so long and to suddenly be, have this sense of, oh, I'm in the room again. It's just an mm -hmm. amazing thing. And it makes you appreciate, I don't know if you feel like this now, appreciate the really simple things that you took for granted. Oh my God. You know? Yeah. Like they had the basic things just like just being with your loved ones. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, definitely. And I think when you're even like working through something is tough as well. And I think you need to do that at the right time as well. Cause the minute that you start to do therapy or, or start to talk or work through it, you bring all this stuff up and you kind of have to go down before you go up. I think like most of us have some sort of hurt, whether it's something violent or not. Like most of us have something that when we talk about it, we're, we're trying to keep ourselves together, you know, and it's a source of hurt. So I wanted the film to to speak to anyone that has been through some sort of trauma or hurt really. But also now I just want to get it in front of people that are at risk. I want to get it in front of the young people that have either been affected or are susceptible to it as well. So I'm having talks with organizations. Uh, yeah, you want to start conversations, don't you? And I think watching a film can impact. Do you know what? Like, I think sometimes we underestimate how much that can impact someone. And it, through the messages I've had, I know that the film has made a lot of people, even close to me and stuff, really reflect and see things differently and, and reflect upon their own journeys. But I think what's stronger than that is if I can get the film into spaces where it's going to be used hand in hand with pastoral and ongoing care and used as like almost like a resource really for, on, for yeah. ongoing support. And I think who you are and how you present as a person and the people that you talk to in the film is also part of that message as well. That is that you, it's okay to be vulnerable. You know what I mean? You don't come across to me as a sort of shrinking violet type of person and the people you speak to in the film are stand up guys and these people that mm. might struggle to be, if you can do it, then anybody else can. That's also quite important, I think, who the messenger is a bit. 
Yeah, definitely. I think like I grew up with this sort of a group of like predominantly male friends that you'd look at us in a pub and you'd think like that they're, they're not talking about mental health or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. That most of us are like most of my friends I grew up with in primary school are like tradesmen, builders and stuff like that. Some have gone completely different walks of life, but yeah. we're a group of like kids, like probably like working class, lower middle class kids, but that always counseled each other. Like I've been there for my friends when they've had panic attacks and we've always spoken about our feelings. It was important for me to show vulnerability in the film. Yeah. Um, and that's not always easy to do. Problems. If you're not always easy to do, if you're a journalist and a filmmaker that's become used to supporting and telling stories of other people to be vulnerable. It's weird. You know, it's weird. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is weird. It is weird. Yeah. But I also think, yeah. I think that the, you talk about being, you know, working class kids that's able to tell these stories from your own personal experience. But just generally, I think there aren't enough people in the, in the media that come from the sort of places that we both come from that can tell those stories with authenticity and realness. And I think that's really important as well. The, the yeah, other yeah. stories you, the other stories you go on to tell in your documentary career, you can shine a kind of lens on a world and a perspective that, yeah, maybe obvious to to people in your circle, but it's not in the media. I think that's really critical to be able to do that. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I've always been drawn to channeling my experiences growing up into my work, really. But I think I think more and more we're having discussions around who tells what story and i think yeah like like media in general it's kind of having a sort of going through a process of reform and i think documentaries and, and for good reason have always sort of existed on this premise that you have someone that's unbiased come in and tell a story about someone else but yeah it's got yeah. like an edge of colonialism with it as well i think sometimes you need that kind of that that non-biased unbiased kind of perspective just come in just pure journalism but what you get from this film is like something completely different when you've got me yeah. and jasper it's different isn't it things, you know yeah, yeah it's yeah. a different type of journalism when more as you say you do need that objective sense but no i find what you made was just really and i implore anybody to go and watch it go on the iplayer scars surviving a stabbing it says it on the tin really doesn't it and um, just in brief though what's next for you now are you allowed to say what you're kind of working on have you got an idea of, of what you're doing next yeah of course yeah the next thing i'm doing is um, i'm going on to a series like a larger series as part of a team about the london ambulance service it's something i've worked on before with the team for the last five years showing the amazing work of our paramedics it's a love letter to our nhs and then i'll be developing my own projects alongside that as well but to be honest scars was so all-consuming that i just had to give everything to it so yeah when i finished it i was almost like i've not thought about what i'm gonna do next right. i've just nice kind of- to chill out for a little bit give a little bit of space and this is obviously yeah. having a bit of an impact i know you saw you on somebody else's show the other day as well that people were reacting to it and like you said, all good, I think all good documentaries don't just stop and end. They open up a conversation and have a kind of ripple effect. And um, you know, I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen with yours. Thank you ever so much. I'm going to see if I can pronounce your name right at the end. Thank you, A. No, got that right? I have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should drop the ODH and just write A and then people would be able to say it properly, I think. Oh, it'd be too easy. Yeah, it'd be too easy. I'm, I'm, I'm stubborn and Irish, yeah. I could have changed it to Aid years ago, but I, I like can't it. water Keep it down, it. really. Yeah, yeah, like it, like it. <laughs> Thank you for your time. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you, man. It's been a pleasure. Many thanks to this week's guest on Bristol Unpacked, filmmaker Aid 
Brennock and do jump on the BBC iPlayer to look for his documentary Scars Surviving a Stabbing and we'll be back next time with another brilliant guest and a fantastic topic I'm Neil Maggs big thanks to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise also Blue Dot for our music <laughs>